0: Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI, I'm here today with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. Today is Wednesday the 28th of the 4th. Michael, how have you been since Sunday?
1: I've been fine, thank you Gary, fine, fine.
0: Today is a good day, Michael. After months and months of talking endlessly about vaccines and virus, praying for someone to do something stupid politically. You know, some just a good old-fashioned, either corruption or a mess, or something just going sideways... That wasn't related to COVID or anything like that. And over the last two weeks, the government has—they have—they have have fulfilled that wish, Michael. And then they've just kept going. It's
1: been a bit of a cornucopia. I mean, now it's not just a national, local cornucopia. Internationally, politicians are delivering on their capacity, their promise, indeed. To entertain us all, and they're doing it in spades.
0: So we may as well start with the one that's actually most related to the virus, although not directly. This is about the EU's AstraZeneca case. So we were talking about that the last while, and I got a couple of messages, and they're like, "Gary, if the EU is bringing a legal case, they obviously know what they're doing, and they found a way to do it that gets around the clause you guys keep talking about, which you say uh, means they have agreed not to bring a case." And there was a, you know, there was a chance that. Those messages were right about that because I'm certainly not an expert in Belgian contract law. Or an interesting article in Politico the other day which talks about this. Now most of the article is about how the Belgian government was told that the contract they were signing with AstraZeneca, Politico say, lacked teeth. When you actually read the document, though, the Belgian government were told that there are, um, if AstraZeneca doesn't respect the contract, there's nothing the Belgian government could do, and perhaps they should consider changing that.
1: Seems like a reasonable reservation on the basis of the language of the contract, and a reasonable reservation on the consequences for the Belgian government. It's not great news, however, from the point of view of your upcoming legal uh, chances of getting this overturned, when, before you'd even signed it, people were saying, you know what? They don't fulfil nothing you can do.
0: Yeah, and apparently that went to the EU and it was decided that, well, it's too late to um, (laughs) amend those provisions.
1: Too late to amend the provisions, yeah. Take all afternoon, you know.
0: Yeah, so they just they just didn't go ahead with it. However, one other thing it points out is that the EU is going to have to try and get a particular provision of the contract, which would otherwise stop them from bringing the case entirely, thrown out by the Belgian courts. And I would suspect that is the provision we were talking about. The one yeah. that specifically says they can't do this. So the EU is going to go to a Belgian court and say, this part where we said we wouldn't sue them, we'd like you to remove that because we really shouldn't have signed that.
1: Yeah, I think what the EU's position will be... Uh, there are a couple of possibilities they can take. They can say that um, they were under the influence uh, of other, more powerful people. You know, So there was coercion. In other words, bigger boys came along and made them do it. I kind of don't know quite who that would be. Unless it was like you can imagine the, I don't know, Angela Merkel and Macron standing over them with a stick saying, you sign that now? Or they could claim diminished capacity of comprehension, that they just weren't able to understand it on the and that, on the basis that the EU is just, in, in a way, congenitally stupid, or maybe has an IQ below, 20 points below 100, and therefore shouldn't be allowed to sign contracts anyway. But I don't know if that's where you want to go for the future, though. Otherwise, it's going to be tricky.
0: I would be interested to see how willing a Belgian court is to go, hmm, you're right, that didn't work out for you. Let's remove that provision that you knowingly signed. And which we can now tell from the fact that uh, at least some of the governments were getting advice on the contract before it was signed, you knew would be an issue. You were explicitly told was an issue and you decided not to remove before signing the contract. Kind of sounds like you were fully aware of the issues this could cause.
1: Well, you'd be <laughs> fully aware implies a level of, I don't know, consciousness and comprehension and a... And awakeness I don't know if we'd want to commit to that they knew insofar as they could understand what the situation was but you know you know it was sh- shouldn't shouldn't a handshake be good enough Gary? shouldn't the word of a gentleman does that does that not mean anything anymore see this is why the English were doing so well because the English are fundamentally untrustworthy people and therefore they they understand this kind of thing they're deceitful people who write deceitful contracts clauses that impose penalties but they're not decent on Maybe it's naive, but wouldn't you prefer to be the decent European gentleman than some kind of conniving Brit that goes around writing correct contracts? I
0: mean, yes, and on the plus side, if you were that decent, you know, trusting European, you'd also get to see the inside of many Belgian courts. Yes, which I'm sure is charming. I do like the way Politico, um, Politico have written this. They mention that the clause says the Commission cannot sue AstraZeneca if it doesn't deliver on time, and it just says, this is a clause lawyers believe the Commission will seek to invalidate. <laughs> yes, yes, I imagine they would, wouldn't they? I'd say that's really high up there on the list of priorities.
1: Another possibility, of course, maybe they, they, they can claim that someone snuck it in on the QT. Never told them about it. Just snuck it in.
0: Yeah, that's 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 again going to be a problem because of the, the Belgian documents which were just found where... They reviewed everything before they signed it. And I would suspect, Michael, that some of the governments also reviewed it before they signed it. And though, because of that, it will just be harder to say, well, I didn't know that was there. Maybe Ireland can get away with it because we probably didn't review it before we signed it.
1: Why Why change the habits of a lifetime?
0: Why get competent now?
1: The fact is, even if we had read it and understood it and realised that there were issues with it, we were never going to say that look looked like some kind of awkward, balsy kid at the back making trouble for teacher. We would have just gone away and just said, had a little worry to ourselves maybe, but just went on the principle that eh, it'll be all right. Now for the Germans. If the German government were at this, uh, <clears throat> that would be interesting to see about the political reaction in Germany. I, mean, I don't know if latest polling in Germany shows the CDU way down. The SDP, the uh, Social Democrats, uh, similarly so. The Greens surging up 14%, I th- the uh, pandemic has been very bad news for the, the heritage parties, although, well, I suppose they're the small party, the Liberals, who often struggle to hit the 5% are up on 11%. it has been just politically very bad news. And if this were to come out that the Germans had actually read the contract, were aware of it, or were aware of the difficulties, Geez, I think Angela might retire sooner rather than later. But of course, they'll blame Ursula anyway, then maybe they'll be right.
0: So, from one bad decision to another, Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson decided he was going to start a fight with Dominic Cummins. Dominic Cummins, for those who don't recall, being the um, ex aide to Boris Johnson. And Dominic Cummins was obviously very large in the uh, campaign to leave the EU. ...and very, very integral in the election of Boris Johnson... ...and a man who probably knows where everybody is buried... ...in or around Whitehall... ...and Boris Johnson decided he was going to publicly attack him. And Michael, would it shock you to know that... ...when Dominic Cummins publicly responded to that attack... ...it's created rather a substantial array of problems for Boris Johnson ranging from comments about being willing to see bodies stack up in the street uh, due to COVID, to um, a couple of questions about who paid to renovate a flat. It's the, whole,
1: it's the whole kit and caboodle here, isn't it? It goes from the language... You see, How can I say this? I'm not utterly devoid of sympathy for Johnson and some of this stuff, in that when you have private conversations about a very serious subject like the pandemic and issues around say, the correct way to proceed with it, And you're looking at, you're trying to come to a, a conclusion and you're actually having a debate. And that was one of the things that does seem to be, that's interesting, at least in the, the, in the commentary here, is that there was a really strong, vigorous, animated debate within the cabinet about what was going to be the best way forward for this. Johnson used languages and images that, when you just pluck them out of the air and put them into a newspaper headline or into the heart of a newspaper story, sound absolutely horrible. I mean, grotesque. Whether they would have sounded like that in the context of a number of hours of a heated debate about people genuinely trying to arrive at what they thought was the best solution for the sake of, for the people and for the nation, that's another thing. But there's a perception of Johnson that people say, well, what do we know about him? We know. He is uh, foot and mouth, but maybe some of that's deliberate. He... money is an issue. I mean, he likes to have... he's double job for quite a while. And that was largely because he likes to support a lifestyle. He likes the ladies.
0: To an unknown degree.
1: To an unknown degree. And he, got, he, he does... He, he, he likes to put a stroke. The, the, the flat thing is... while far less serious... In the context of what they're talking about, the idea of, as obviously against the idea of bodies piling up, is the tawdrier version, and maybe it's the thing that actually does more damage. In, in
0: I don't know. So just for those who aren't aware of what happened here, Boris Johnson had some messages with James Dyson of the Dyson Company, and these were leaked to the BBC. Johnson blamed uh, Cummins for doing this and publicly accused him of the leaks and is rumoured to have gone through every newspaper editor in the country slamming Cummins in private conversations. And then he was terribly shocked when Cummins responded. Yeah. There's just a sort of, what what did you think was going to happen here, Boris?
1: Uh, It's not like Dominic Cummins ever gave anybody the impression that he was this shrinking violet that would flee any kind of confrontation and didn't feel comfortable talking to the press. Cummins... Had that kind of svengali like role in this administration and, and the election, I I, I suppose Alistair Campbell and m- maybe Peter Mandelson would have been associated with the, with the with the Blair regime, and a bit like Campbell, he has this reputation for being rather a vigorous interlocutor. I mean, he really he, he It's not that he takes the <laughs> somebody said to me, not that he takes the argument by the scruff of the neck, but he's rather he takes you by the scruff of the neck and shakes you around like a rat trying to break your neck. So why anybody, and this is one of the reasons why he ultimately had to leave. He made a lot of people, who there were a lot of people in the party uh, who really just did not like him. And there was a sense that maybe his moment had now gone, we had to move to a different type of politics. But why any, why Boris would its thought that Dominic would just take this passively, quiescently, lie down and say nothing? It's
0: just baffling. Cummins seemed to accept losing his position and left relatively quietly unless he is actually the person leaking all of these things. But to think that you could publicly accuse him of these things and publicly start attacking him and that he wouldn't respond and that if he didn't respond or if he responded, that it wouldn't be damaging.
1: Yeah, he left. Fine, that He left. And to an extent, that was part... You, you leave and you don't make the show. That's You're a professional. You're a hard man. You're a professional. This happens. If you chase the pair away, Gary, you... And you're now saying don't you, you don't go after the bear with a pointy stick to see if you can make you can you can pay, chase him some more. That doesn't make any sense. Let him go on.
0: Poking at it, go, do something. Go on. Do something. Go on. And then like ten minutes later you're there just mauled, going, I can't believe it did that to me. <laughs> Does the feeling seem to be legitimately surprised when Cummins came out and he started making these comments and he mentioned that the Prime Minister had wanted to have party donors secretly pay for the renovation of a flat, and Cummins told him that it was unethical, foolish, possibly illegal, and almost certainly broke the rules on proper disclosure of political donations, and then said that he would be happy to talk about all of these things before Parliament under oath. (laughs)
1: That's what you call a threat. That's taking out the pistol appointment and saying, right, go on. Go up, punk, make my day.
0: So this has now become actually quite a big problem for Boris. And I think it may actually be the flat. That's the real thing. Because that definitely be considered, shall we say, Michael, financial or political corruption. And shall we say, the denials from um, Boris' people have not been denials as such.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, at least you, when you're caught with your hand in, 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 in the honey jar, at least you you. you don't go down the line. Bill Clinton famously was accused of having done inappropriate things with an intern called Monica Lewinsky. Some of our younger listeners may not remember this. I was away anyway, at the time, and I remember talking to a friend of mine, who was an American lawyer, and there was a lot of who ha brou-ha about this. And I said, no, he, 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 he can't have done it. Why? Because Bill came out, and I, I'm sure you remember that you've seen the video, Gary, where Bill says, into the camera, I did not have sexual relations with that woman. It's always been a rule in politics but that if, if you're caught, you don't give the actual, straight up, no escape denial. Because then, if you're caught, and you are always caught, and that's maybe the one the problems politicians have, they have this, they get into their they get into a certain position where they don't think they can be. You get caught, and you know what kills you is not the the fact of what you've done. What kills you is the lie. And it's, I think it's, you, you have to notice the care with which many of these statements are framed, that they're, they're not actually declarative sentences at all. <laughs> In some sense, a couple of them I've read and I've, I've looked for a verb and a subject and an object together, and I can't really find one. But they, they seem to be more mood music, more responsive to express a sense of emotion rather than to actually state any fact. And they have been pretty careful. Bill, of course, later came out and pointed out that he didn't consider the blow job to be sexual relations, which just goes to show you that Bill Clinton has had a far more blessed life than most people.
0: It's just on, on, on the, the, the flat, the interesting thing there is, is the total spend that they think Johnson may have spent on it. The BBC thinks about 200000 mm. because Boris Johnson's uh, fiancé has uh, expensive tastes. Very expensive taste, even in wallpaper. And that actually comes up in another thing that Cummins says, which is that um Johnson asked him to end an inquiry because it could implicate one of the friends of Johnson's fiance, and Cummins had to refuse, which would also, Michael, be a what some people might call a big deal.
1: Well yeah, also is there a big the big well not even the beginnings but the amplification here of uh a Madden Pompadour scenario, the importance of the role of uh, Johnson's partner in this, which is always good fun. So you've got peculation, um, you have the stuff of the pandemic, you have the, sen- the the implication of excessive or undue influence from his partner. It's <laughs> They're getting all of the ingredients you need to make a really high quality political stew here.
0: It's almost like, Michael, Dominic Cummins is an expert at political communication and deliberately (laughs) chose enough mentions of things to fuck Johnson multiple ways. And that now it's just a question of newspapers figuring out what they like the most.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's a smorgasbord. It's a buffet. Different papers can pick different things. Um, Those that are interested, particularly in sort of scarcity with the pandemic will go after the pandemic stuff. The ones that like to do the nitty-gritty with the, uh, the money side go after the, the flat and then those that like to do the kind of the social human stories maybe go after the relationship. But there's something for everybody.
0: Yeah, but apparently Boris Johnson is terrified of uh, further revelations from Cummins. And the government fear he has uh, what they're calling a treasure trove, Michael, of material which he could give to a parliamentary inquiry. And I wouldn't, th- I wouldn't think that's terribly surprising. Again, Boris Johnson deliberately, publicly attacked a man who knew everything about him, everything about his inner circle, and probably everything Johnson had ever done that could be a political issue. And Johnson publicly attacks this man.
1: It'll be interesting to see what this, what the story is, maybe in a, in a week's time, if they do some bowling. Just before this broke, or as this was breaking... Uh, the polls had the Tories on, I think, an eleven-point lead.
0: Oh, yeah, it was it was incredible.
1: And if you think we're now in the eleventh year of a Tory government, for a party to be eleven points ahead at this stage, also in the middle of a pandemic, but of course that works both ways. If if, you, if if you're perceived to have handled and are to be handling it well, well then you get a you're going to you, you get bonus points. But right now, there's a if those numbers were, were, were to be repeated in, in an election and the, with the geography and the nature of the system over there, the Tories be in a good position to actually increase their representation, potentially. There are others who say, well, actually, no, you won't get the repeat at the same time, blah, 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 blah. but blah that go there's certainly But they're certainly on course for a very substantial majority. And if they were to repeat that, say, you know, three years in, 11, that's 14, you're setting up a situation where Labour wouldn't be in a position to threaten for government for at least an, for another two election cycles. I mean you are talking genuinely twenty years Tory government um, with another six or seven of Boris. Now, does anybody think that Boris could stick it in for a, as long as as Margaret Thatcher? That he would survive the slings and arrows? Who knows? But it's going to be interesting to follow. It's a story that's going to be. Uh, it's going to be giving. I think Gary more than than being as dull as our own local show is. Boris is going to keep us uh, keep us entertained.
0: So from one piece of uh, potential law-breaking to another, Michael. We are having an immigration amnesty.
1: We are? Why? I mean, okay, when I say that, I, I, I'm not asking that from the point of view of the, the actual, the rightness of the wrongness of the policy, but
0: why now? I believe it was in the Program for Government. I, as the only person who read the Program of Government, say.
1: No, no, no. I was beaten onto my feet, bled, and I did it too. But I still don't... How many... Un, okay, <laughs> we're already getting to the, the American politics of this in a ridiculous and very small-scale way. How, uh, illegals, aliens, undocumented people. What's the estimated number of undocumented people here?
0: Well, the, the NGOs usually put it at about 17,000.
1: Okay, 17,000 is people. It's the size of a, you know, a large sort of market town in the country. Is this a... Why? Why not? What is the... What are the upsides of this? What are the benefits? I mean, I can see the benefits to the people. But what are the benefits
0: to the state? I've been trying to ask Justice a couple of questions on this. Not getting terribly far from their transparency officers, which is always fun. So I asked... Ben Scallon had a chance to ask uh, McEntee a question directly. And I asked him to ask about this. And what I asked him to ask was, has the government uh, actually completed an analysis of the impact of this policy and figured out what safeguards they may need to put in place? Because in in immigration terms, you have, when you're looking at immigration flows, you have what are called pull factors and push factors. Pull factors are those things that will make you move into a country. So, you know, certain types of um, immigration law make the country uh, just more attractive to people. Not putting any moral or ethical value on it. Just certain policies will make countries more likely to receive immigration. Um, membership of a wider block would be one of those. The EU, if you can go into one state and you can then go anywhere in the EU, that's a pull factor to particular countries. So would things like amnesties. Push factors would be things like political instability, war, economic depression, those kind of things. Those they push people to leave areas. So we asked them because this is undoubtedly a pull factor because if you were going to move illegally into a country and you know that there's a chance they might just regularize your condition if you stay there long enough so you can go from illegal to legal through an amnesty if you stay there long enough that's going to increase illegal immigration you would expect or at least make the country more attractive to people who are looking to come here and um, the department isn't giving me a solid answer. And from what Helen McEntee said, she didn't seem to want to answer that question about the analysis that should have been done and the safeguards that they should have determined. You know, the whole, sure, you're doing this, but what are you doing to make sure you don't need to do it again? And I would suspect, Michael, that the department didn't, that the government has announced an amnesty without actually analysing the impact of it.
1: So is this being done, I don't just tediously push the, the question again, is this being done simply in, on the basis that there are 17 odd thousand people in the country who are undocumented illegally here and therefore living in an uncomfortable situation and we want to just regularise the situation for them in an act of kind of sympathetic charity, in an act of goodness of our heart. I mean what's the, the benefit of the, to the state?
0: Every time it's brought up, all they start talking about is illegal Irish uh, in America.
1: Well, what's that got to do with the price of fish? I mean, really?
0: It's very it's very popular with the NGOs, though, because that's what they're saying. They're saying we're, we're looking for those people to be regularised. Uh, so in order to be consistent, Michael, we have to regularise those in our own country.
1: Consistency. That's going to be the principle on which government is based or, ex- or policy is executed in this country. Consistency. Are the NGOs are going to go forward on the basis of consistency, coherence? Yeah. Well, Gary. Okay, that's that's not convincing. Other, why should we? We're being told that because we want illegal Irish people in the United States to be given an amnesty and regularized. That we have to do that for people over here. Now, that might make sense. If we were saying that we were going to regularise all of the Americans that were illegally in Ireland, that might have a coherence to it. But why would the American administration give a flying fuck about our our willingness to regularise the situation of Brazilians and Peruvians and Montenegrins or whoever? What, what's that got to do with anything?
0: They won't care. They
1: won't care anyway. This is just... You know, I, to be honest with you, I don't actually have massively strong feelings either way about this. I know the argument that if you create an amnesty, then you may create uh, an inward pull on the basis that people see that there was an amnesty. and Well, if there was an amnesty now, there might be an amnesty in the future. I don't think that's a very strong pull, because you're going to have to get here. You're going to have to get a job. You're going to have to stay here for... I mean, there's not going to be an amnesty, another amnesty for maybe another seven or eight years if the, if there is another amnesty, and it's it's a far from a guaranteed thing that there would be. We're not an enormously attractive country for uh, illegal immigrants anyway. We have a pretty tough policy regarding how you can legally be here. I just don't I don't see anybody making an argument why this is to the benefit. If you wanted to, Kerry, if you wanted to do something regarding the status of people living in this country, uh, and you want to do something progressive and compassionate. What? Why would we not start, for example, with the fact that we have slews of doctors in this country coming, who come from, say, from Africa, from the Middle East, or from, from uh, the subcontinent, who are basically supporting the health system, but are being forced to leave by our policy. And the policy, in fact, is having a perverse... Uh, out a perverse outcome in that the people who are least likely to be ambitious and dedicated to improvement and academically uh, academically high achievers are the people who are being encouraged to stay i was friendly many uh, well not many a good few a few years ago with a a, a doctor his his family were back from Pakistan but he had grown up in the emirates he was a very bright guy he was ambitious he had done a series of postgraduate uh, courses in different places. He had come to Ireland, he said, straight off, initially because it was at the time the best money he could get in his particular position. He said, however, I like it here. I enjoy the work. I enjoy my colleagues. I think the standard of medicine being practiced is pretty high. However, because I'm not an EU uh, citizen under the present regulations, I am precluded from doing any of those the any of the uh, postgraduate or the uh, our predoctoral or postdoctoral courses that I need to advance in my profession. If I stay here, I will be stuck at a certain level. And he said, it's not even the fact that I'm going to be stuck vis a vis money, or I'm going to be stuck vis a vis my status or my rank in the hospital. But I'm never, I'm never going to be ad- going to advance in my career. I'm not going to advance technically, and, and I'm not going to, I'm not going to learn. He said. Where he was, he said he was very fortunate because his, his boss allowed him unofficially to go to take part in 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 a series of what you call as was upskilling courses. But he said, but he would never get any certification on the back of that. We this is a really bad policy. Now we, we were constantly told the reason was because it was an EU thing. That is now not the case. It probably never was the case because health is not a uh, not a health is not a competence held by Europe. It's a national competence. If they want to do something, they could change that straight off. If they want to do something, they could look at issues regarding the the length of time that people have to stay in this country be, before they can vote, say, in general elections or referenda. if they wanted, If they want to do something for people who are living here, who are not native Irish, there are things they could do. But why this? I don't... It, it, it makes no sense to me. And it is also just the... It is offensive to the principle, if we care about it, that you are ultimately rewarding somebody for breaking the law more successfully than other people. What you're saying is all those people who are bad at breaking the law, those people who actually didn't succeed in evading the authorities whilst being here illegally, well, they got chucked out or they got they, they got their cards. However, since you were really good at doing that, we're now going to reward you by making you citizens. Or, if shall we say, or giving you a permanent green card or permanent work stamp. Work, per, work permit status. That doesn't seem to me to be a particularly sound principle for the application of justice or the rule of the law. But there
0: you go. No, I, I, I think that is the, my major issue with it as well. If you want to have a looser immigration law, have a looser immigration law, and then people can vote on whether or not they like you implementing that policy. But the law should be the law. Yeah. To stand there and say, we are the party of law, as Fine Gael is very comfortable doing... While putting in place a policy that is on the face of it sort of offensive to that principle, it strikes me as something that should be mentioned. As well as that, I don't like the situation, and we're seeing it a lot this year, where the government can simply ignore written law and can decide where and when it will be applied. So we saw it in relation to religious services when it turned out that there was no actual legal prohibition on them. And then the government just changed the law to do that. Then they did something which effectively banned weddings. And even when I was writing that, when I was reporting it, I knew that that wouldn't actually impact anyone on the ground because there was no way the government was actually going to act as if it was the case. They were simply going to ignore it, even if the legal arguments were correct. Yes. And now you have things like this, where you're explicitly going... Well yes, you broke the law and you should be punished, but we've decided en masse that you won't be. And I, I do not like a situation in which the state can pick and choose which laws are going to apply to which people.
1: Yeah, it's also there's gonna be well, you could there's going to be a, a very arbitrary nature to the application of this law anyway. You could say that's true of all laws, I suppose, but they're gonna they're gonna to have to pick a date, aren't they?
0: Yeah, they're currently they're currently doing a or about to open up a consultative process. Now, one of the things that um, I've been trying to find out from the Department of Justice, last Monday, or it could have just been Monday gone, actually, the ministers, the two ministers in the Department of Justice, sat down with what they called key stakeholders and started the consultative process. And I went to the Department of Justice and I said, look, the consultative process, it uses the term key stakeholders. Does that include the public? As in, will the public be able to write and give... um, give their view on this before it's implemented? And also, how were the people who attended that Monday meeting selected? How were these NGOs selected? And is the material presented at that going to become publicly available? And I'm getting answers from Justice, but not answers that actually answer those questions. Just boilerplate PR exercises about the need for consultation and then the need to engage with key stakeholders. So no one will tell me, how these NGOs got selected, if the public is going to have any say, or what anyone is talking about. And I would suspect there that the public will have no say, that these NGOs were selected privately in a way that will not be disclosed, and they will have nearly all of the influence on this.
1: I can't stand this stakeholders thing. I, I, I don't know when it started, but it's become this constant thing we're going to talk to all the stakeholders we're going to include all the stakeholders stakeholders will be consulted which gives this mirage of democracy about it when it is in fact the opposite of democracy you're privileging groups that have happened to be successful at lobbying for money and garnering influence and they've put themselves in a position where they make where they can access the state, access members of the government, access the media, and make a lot of noise. But they have no democratic credentials. They have no position within the state. Do you know what actually this is, Gary? It's a, is a kind of low-grade form of fascism. This is a, this is a kind of for a, for a corporate state where rather than having individuals represented themselves or the sense that each individual citizen has this equal value, everybody gets to be part of a different corporation. It's kind of a postmodern evolution of the guild system. And you're represented by that bit of the state, that bit of the corporate state, which then makes representatives, representations to, 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 the, to, the, to the parliament or to the leader about what, what it is that they want to see. This is not, this is not democratic. In any sense, it also just we. I don't know if we'll talk about it today, but it's it's like that whole thing with say with the minimum alcohol pricing. I saw a, a, somebody on social media dismissing the concerns of somebody about the alcohol thing with a a link to a paper from Alcohol Ireland. This, that's just one example of dozens and dozens that we know of where taxpayers' money is taken from the taxpayer. Given to groups which then actively lobby against their interests, actively lobby against what the taxpayer wants, in order to achieve their particular goals. It really is. It's like being at a poker table, and the guy beside you keeps stealing your money to to stay in the pot on the basis that he, if he can keep long enough, and you'll run out of money, and he will, he'll win, he'll win the pot. It's just absurd. It's just. It is it's a it's a simulacrum for democracy but it's not democratic do we have any clue who these stakeholders are or, or put it this way Gary if we were to give you a uh, if we were to give you a fiver for everyone you could guess and uh, if you were to give them 10 guesses would you be happy enough you get you'd come out with 50 quid
0: I I have a even without seeing the list I have a fair sense I could nail it what what I quite like is when when I'm when I asked the department would people like normal people, Michael, voters, some might say, I'd be able to give their views on this. They said, well, we are seeking the views of civil society, NGOs and other key stakeholders, which is a very fancy way of saying no, but we will ask a number of NGOs. Do
1: you remember somebody was recently, they were getting in a a pickle about the fact that uh, somebody was grilling the minister who didn't have the right credentials who are they to demand? And I asked the person who was being outraged out right at the time, surely being a citizen of the Republic is the basic requirement to demand an answer of a member of the Dáil or the government. But that doesn't seem to work anymore. Little waifs and strays like thee and me and the ordinary Joe and soap so in the street carry, no, unless we are part of... A civic group unless we are part of an NGO unless we are part of some kind of representative body which is being lavishly funded by the taxpayers we don't get to have an opinion about this anymore unless of course we get picked to go to the the citizens assembly but then we have many many opinions this has been going on for a long time maybe in this particular in this year in this time it has reached its apotheosis where they have the capacity to fill that silence that has been created by the absence of you know engagement between the TDs and their constituents in such a way that they have even more even disproportionate influence than they used to. Maybe they should never have got to the place that they're in in the first place. It is just now an absolute standard reflex thing. Stakeholders, we have to talk to the stakeholders, and it's no, nobody questions it. Why are these people, how do they get to be stakeholders? To, to coin a fucking glacier? who elected them? I, 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 didn't elect, I didn't elect any of these people. I didn't vote for any of these people. I voted for the crowd The crowd, in Leinster, in Leinster House. I voted for them. I have no interest in the rest of them, or their opinions. Couldn't give a flying fuck about them. And I don't see why they should get this disproportionate interest. Why is their voice to be heard?
0: So you're not happy with a position of the state funding groups whose only purpose is to lobby the state to do things?
1: You know what? The <laughs> the answer is shortly no. We used to have a thing called charities, right? And charities would would be set up because we want to provide education for poor children. So we would go and get money and we will build schools and we employ teachers, we'll teach poor children. Or we want to provide... Food for people who don't have enough food. We want to apply shelter for people who have shelter we get it, we build houses, we give them houses. Or we have care for people who live in poverty abroad and don't have access to clean water. So people would give them money and when they go out, they would build wells. That was that that was that how would one say? That's the that was the system, that was the uh... now we don't do that anymore. If you're in the business of Providing you providing housing or say education, you don't build schools anymore. You you get your money, you pay a PR company, you go in, you lobby the state to increase taxes or deliver taxes from from one thing into another, and to build for, so the state builds houses. If you want, if you want to get aid in the third world increased, you don't go to the people. You get money from them. You know, you 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 get you you lot you become a lobby group and you lobby the state that's what they do and if you want to see alcohol banned in ireland or its consumption reduced to zero you get together you get the state to give you money and then you, you use that money to successfully lobby the state using the bloody money that the fucking duties and the tax and the excise and the vat that they've got from selling pints and bottles of beer, and small ones in pubs around the country, in order to do so. That's what lobby. That's what ch- charities are nowadays. Increasingly, they are not actually bodies designed to alleviate need. They're designed to alleviate taxpayers of their money in order to achieve the uh, the, the the outcomes that they desire.
0: Speaking about um, alcohol, Michael, did you enjoy the? Uh, the report that uh, brides and bridal parties could no longer be given alcohol at dress fittings? Do you enjoy that one?
1: You know, there are times when you get maybe a tiny bit paranoid and you wonder if things are being done just deliberately for you. And I was reading the report, and I did did think, was this designed to give me a stroke? There are two fundamental issues, shall we say, around the report on the advance of the regulation of alcohol and the pricing of alcohol in this country. One is the minimum pricing, which is simply and nothing but a nasty classist attack on poor people, or on people with low incomes. That's all it is. On the other side, is a government in the business of making laws about shit that they shouldn't never... It shouldn't be within a mile of thinking about why would you create a law to do this stupid, small, pathetic, mean-spirited thing? There is a principle in our legal tradition, which is anything which is not explicitly prohibited is permitted. We start in our tradition on the assumption of permission. It is, in a sense, a permissive legal system. We have the assumption... In human society, we then identify situations where we say, well, no, we, we can't allow that because that has negative aspects on other individuals or the society at large. But you only pass laws when there is a reason because the assumption is that any diminution of an individual's freedom, an individual's right to choose... What they want to do with their money or themselves is a bad thing so for the listeners that may not be aware of this Gary, for example as you say there are there is a tradition is a, is, a, is a big word for over the over years some years now when women go to buy say a bride's dress a bridal outfit they will spend a very long time because you're talking about in cases some thousands of pounds and then there would be shoes and bags and recticules and then there would be mother-in-law dresses and brides dresses and shoes and there be, it's a long long time a lot and very often they will do this after hours in a closed shop and there may be models and they will be given a glass of wine gary a glass of champagne in the wisdom in their wisdom this government has decided they're going to legislate for that they're going to legislate for what people are going to be doing in their private offices, possibly in possibly their homes, when they're looking at dresses. Are they drunk themselves? Are they high? What is wrong with these people? Some barber shops around the country will offer you a bottle of beer. Some there was a brief moment where there were barbershops that put in kegs, kegs of Guinness. I never had one because first of all, I' tend to get my hair cut in the morning and I'm not that kind of guy. And a keg of Guinness, you know, if the flow isn't right and it's not kept, you know, the Guinness isn't going to be great. That's gone. You can't be doing that. You can't be offering people a bottle of beer. Free drink of any kind in fact, Gary. I don't know will restaurants be risking their licenses if they offer somebody a bottle of wine because they were unhappy with some elements of service? Oh, Gary, this is my particular favorite. You... Loyalty cards, you know the loyalty card in the supermarket. It was my late mother's habit to use the loyalty cards from our local supermarket, Pettit's, pet, uh that's where we used to do our shopping weekly, and then at the when it came to Christmas, the points card would be used to buy a couple of bottles, maybe, but depending on what was on it, of course, a bottle jemison, bottle of gin, some wine, half a dozen or a dozen bottles of. Guinness for our next our neighbor up the road who was so helpful and all that and so forth. He was used to buy cheer. And I know for a fact that many, many families did this. That it was a way kind of saving money for something which you wanted to have at Christmas, but it was a kind of a frivolous thing. And this was just a way of putting by a few quid, which meant that at Christmas you didn't have you didn't feel like you're spending money to do this thing. Now, first of all, you're not allowed to get earn points on the purchase of alcohol and you're not allowed to spend your points on alcohol who thought that this was a necessary thing to legislate for
0: Alcohol Action Ireland
1: ah well of course the, the fount of all wisdom and remember alcohol Ireland is not a is a prohibitionist body and it's very important that people understand that they're fundamentally prohibitions. if I would like someone to ask and maybe we we should ask them specifically see if we get an answer it is my absolute conviction that right now this the state government in Ireland is committed that Ireland should be smoke free by what is it four? Twenty-five. Basically? basically, the point being that they want no uh, no cigarettes in this country, no tobacco, no tobacco uh, consumption. I would be very curious about would Alcohol Ireland like to see the state introduce a similar date, a target in Ireland. Because it seems to me, as an organization says on its front page, there is, no safe, there is no safe level of alcohol consumption, has actually nailed its colors to the wall. They, in the world, they thought this was achievable. Their aim would be no alcohol to be available for sale, for sale and consumption in Ireland. So this is, not a, this is not a health body. This is a prohibitionist body. That's what they are. They're teetoters. They're prohibitionists. Also the notion that stopping people use their points to buy a bottle of wine or a bottle of whiskey is in any shape or form going to significantly or even insignificantly benefit the health or the well-being of people of, of any, anybody in this country is just laughable. But even if it did for one person, why is this their business? Have they so little to do? If they have that little to do, Gary, I said, su- my suggestion is this: we should put them on half time. Consequently, half pay, and they can go off and get a, get get another job. They can work half, maybe work part time in Duns, get one of those zero contract hours. Maybe set up a little business of their own, a little pop up coffee place down Air Street. Because if this is all they have to do, then they. They, they have too much time on their hands and they really should be better employed doing something else. Maybe, I don't know, washing dogs in, 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 a, in a rescue home somewhere. giving free haircuts. Something, anything would be better than this. This is pathetic. And it's getting their noses deep into the business of people where they, they have no business being. Oh, and by the way, None of this works anyway. I'm sure you have seen, and I will stop. I will, I will promise I'll stop now. We've seen them referring again and again to the experience in Scotland, right? And I've had so many people say, oh, well, alcohol consumption fell in Scotland afterwards. If I were to ask you, Gary, what the consumption of alcohol was doing, say, in the, last, in the three, four, five years before the introduction of minimal alcohol pricing in Scotland, would you say that... Guess that alcohol consumption is going up or going down?
0: I would guess I going down,
1: and you would be right, as it has been in this country since two thousand and three. We've we're getting on for a quarter. We're getting on twenty years here of year on year decline in alcohol consumption at precisely the same time that the price of alcohol and the availability of alcohol has been lower than it ever was. It, it, it's, this is the, precisely the time when a little analogy came into the market and have transformed the market regarding the price of alcohol and the availability of, say, cheap wine, cheap vodka, whatever. That's the time the, the consumption has gone down. Well, according to this model, it should go up. If, we are, if, 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 if that's the way this thing works. Last year, alcohol consumption in the country declined by 6.5%. 6. 6.5%. 6 when we're all supposed to be staying at home getting soused on cheap wine. But the projections, Gary, the projections are different. The projections have been different for the last number of years and they've been wrong every year, but that doesn't matter. The projections say we have to take action because projections show that we will increase our consumption by next year or the year after, or maybe three years down the line. And, you know, Gary, if you're not going to... Pay attention to the UN projections, but what? why are you going to be in government? To govern? Oh. <laughs> there's no need to be sarcastic.
0: No. A lot of laws, very little governance.
1: As our friend, our mutual friend, you're talking about filling the party of law and order, as a mutual friend of ours was very fond of observing, yeah, lots of order and fuck all law. This won't affect you, though, will it, Gary? Because you're a, you're a Jack Daniels drinker, aren't you?
0: Yeah, so I'm fine. It's really only... I, I suspect the bridal thing, the government didn't quite cop. In the regulations, they specifically drive hairdressers, barbers, and say that they can't give free alcohol. And I would just suspect that the uh, government just didn't cop anything else. You may not have noticed, Michael, but there has been a great deal of law being passed in the last year, actually since this government came in. That you read and you get the strong sense that you may be the first person to actually read this.
1: How can you do that? How can you introduce something like that and not, not notice?
0: Oh, you'd have to be shockingly incompetent.
1: Well, yeah. Okay, yes. Yeah, you see sorry, there,
0: it all say, kind of clicks into say. place there. Uh, yeah, it, you know? yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> I take your point. Yes, 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 yes. Got it. You know, yeah. duh, is all one can say, really. Gary, can I throw a number in there just for people? Because I know a lot of the people, a lot of, there's been a lot of talks saying, uh, poo-pooing the idea that this will actually impact very greatly on um, people at low incomes. I, it's not about that at all. i preface this to the observation. If you drink in a public house, and that's where you do your drinking, none of this will affect you at all. No alcohol will change; will become more expensive. Well,
0: uh, yes and no, because the the alcohol won't directly become more expensive, but you can't run, you know, like a deal where you can get two Jack Daniels for, you know, tenner, or whatever.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. That's that. Sorry, I, I, should, I should, I should, I should be more precise as well. There, there are a number of things that here we talking about. There are, there's legislation which is regarding offers. And, on uh, and multiples and uh, and that kind of thing which will be effect, will potentially affect you I'm, sp- I'm talking about specifically about the minimum alcohol pricing and which is price, putting a, a base unit a base price on every unit of alcohol from that perspective I mean yes you won't be able to do the special offers but from just simply on the issue of, of, of the base cost of the uh, minimum Unit of alcohol that won't be affected in pubs. If you drink champagne, you won't be affected. If you drink Prosecco, you might be affected. You shut enough the bap, Barolo, Barbaresco, all that kind of th- None of that would. Anything which is the kind of thing that people who are in government might drink that will not be affected. So it is an attack on one, one sector of, 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 of the uh, thing. But we're told it's it's not going to be a massive thing, you yeah? know. Well, no, and I think Gary will probably maybe do a little thing on this, maybe for Gript or for some other. Just working out prices, but we we, we have a, we, off the top of my head the one that I can remember. If you were to take a couple man uh, who were together in, in in a house together, and they would come home of an evening and drink two cans of a, an own brand lager from a large multiple in the country. And those cans are 440 millilitres. So you're talking about roughly a pint and a half of beer. And they would do that every day on average. So two cans in the evening, every evening. And that would mean, if I'm right, certainly for the man, and I think also for the woman, that they would still be within the units recommended for safe, Uh, for the recommended unit per week consumption of alcohol. Although I reiterate, as far as Alcohol Ireland would say, there is no safe level of uh, alcohol consumption. Even though there are thousands of studies uh, about the uh, various benefits, particularly to beer and wine, but we'll leave those for another day. That couple on the figures of the, the new base price, will see an increase in their annual spend of over 1,400 euro. In fact, I think it may even be over 1,500 euro. Certainly over 1,400 euro. Now, Gary, if you're a low-income couple, for that's a hell of a lot of money. A hell of a lot of money. And this is going to cost people who want to have a drink, who choose to. They will either spend that money or just simply deny themselves a, a couple of cans. This is a horrible piece of legislation. And the reporting on it has been dreadful. Although, I tell you, we're always given out about them. There was actually a fact check done in the journal some time ago, quite some time ago, on the claims made about uh, the efficacy of minimal alcohol, minimum unit alcohol pricing which based on called the Sheffield model, which was very, very good, actually. Anybody have a Google out there, you can find it. Uh, it went through a lot of the detail pretty well. But generally speaking, the media have not interrogated this at all. And it's just a nasty, it's as nasty a piece of legislation we've seen for a long time. It's, I don't object to the idea. I, 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 I don't use the word middle class as many people do as a pejorative thing. But there is something about this bill which says it was everybody that was involved in this was middle class. And uh, really of the opinion that if you're below a certain income, you shouldn't be drinking anyway. What are you doing having fun and enjoying yourselves? You should be staying at home, saying the rosary. Well, once upon a time, saying the rosary. Now, stay at home and separate your recyclables.
0: I think we will close there. Today, we will be back on Friday.
1: Bye-bye. All the best.